Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. I think great looks like a combination of a few things. We always talk about how a startup hits product market fit and then essentially get a flywheel going, right? In terms of value and everything. So I think great at True Global Ventures, from my point of view, is us finding that company, that team of serial entrepreneurs and an idea that can essentially change the industry, convincing them that we as a fund can help them to grow exponentially globally and us actually helping them to not only close the round with us, but also to grow, number one, like I said, and also to, to close the next round of funding and all subsequent rounds of funding till the ultimate exit. And having that kind of chemistry that maybe after many years later, when they come back and look at us, they say, hey, thanks for the ride. Uh, we really treasure what you do. And in my new startup, say for example, because these are serial entrepreneurs that cannot usually sit still, right? I would love for you, True Global Ventures, to be our investor again. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we have shifted from an era of furor in investing to an era of caution in investing. How should we think about the funding situation for startups in 2023? With me today, Kelly Chu, founding partner of True Global Ventures and a serial entrepreneur as well. Not to mention our long history for the past 16 years. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Devani. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, I remember working with you, Gwen, and Mervyn, who we started pretty early when you are still in school at that point in time. But I'm going to start off the story a little bit further on. How did you start your career? How did I start my career? I think I really look at it from when I actually started to become very inspired. I would say that I came from one of the very premium top secondary schools or high schools in Singapore. And I think one of the things that, that I decided very early in life is I wanted to study computing. So at that year, I essentially, three of us broke the record. <laughs> we went to a polytechnic in the Singapore education system. Usually during those times, you usually would go through a junior college and then go to university. By the time the three of us decided to, to break the trend, and study computing. I would say that was when my whole career was actually set because I really loved technology. I wanted to study technology. I was all in. And then when I go when I went through Polytechnic, one of the key things I did for my final year project was to actually start a company. So I would say that was when I really started my career when I was 18. And of course, without any kind of formal training in marketing, sales, and the usual stuff outside of technology, that was how I started to fail in entrepreneurship. And I learned a lot along the way. So yeah, I would say that was when I essentially started my career. I think there's a lot of parts of your entrepreneurial journey because you have started and worked in various startups, taking them from zero to one, one to 10, and even maybe 10 to 100. I want to zoom in specifically. What have you learned most 
from your different entrepreneurial stints, specifically from Brentology, because I understand there's an exit and Neuro, which is your most recent startup. Sure. When I co-founded this Brentology, this was 2008, it was already the fourth startup that I was trying. At the time, just before Brentology, essentially I was lost, right? I had already failed three times in entrepreneurship during my time in school, two in university, once in poly. And I was just searching around, trying to find out whether I should, you know, what they always say, get a real job or, you know, continue the entrepreneurship path again. I would say the turning point came because of a warm introduction by my army boss to my future mentor, Eddie. And when I met him, my world changed. Uh, he taught me anything, everything and anything from marketing to sales. And at the time in 2008, social media just started, right? At least in, in this part of the world in Singapore, in Asia also. And Eddie and I, myself, we discovered a trend because a lot of people were talking about brands, about services and products online. And there was really no way to figure out whether some of these were genuine or not, right? So we, we realized that a lot of these brands were struggling to figure out what were some of the feedback that people were giving them on their products and services. So we thought, okay, why don't we start a company that essentially crawled the internet, the social media, the user-generated content. So things like forums, YouTube, Twitter, you name it, anything that's public. And we basically extracted that as intelligence for the marketing and the PR team in these corporates. So we had clients from banks, we had all the major banks, uh, stat boards, governments, consumer brands, you name it. A lot of them were our clients. So we were... Extremely lucky in the sense that we were at the right time at the right place with the right solution to be able to serve this particular market. And we grew from there. We were like 300 people in 12 countries within three years, raised venture capital, went to China, dominated a huge part of China, and then essentially sold to our competitor who was doing it, but in a more traditional way, right? So they were doing like news, radio, print, monitoring, intelligence, and we were focused on social media. And when we mm. merged, it was a really interesting time because then we could do all media kind of intelligence and eventually the whole group went IPO and that was how we exited. And then after that, you spent some time and then work on Neuro. And I think there's a very different set of experience you've gone through there. Absolutely. It was a totally ex different experience, I would say, because Neuro was a, a deep tech company using hardware, using a mixture of AI, using a mixture of brain sensors, what we call brain-computer interface, BCI. It was a totally different experience. The technology was there. It was from ASTAR. But I think the challenge at the time was basically we had to wait for and get enough data for regulatory approval. So a startup obviously cannot wait for such approvals. So we started to look at things like, for example, the senior market. And then what we discovered with the senior market is like, they love to play the games because there was a game connected to a sensor, a brain sensor that enhances their attention and their memory. So the seniors like to play but they don't like to pay, essentially. And we started to look at different markets. So not just the senior market, but also the children's market, the stress market, the stress relief market, and different markets. So that was how we started to, to extend our product lines into different things. It was a really interesting experience. I'm really appreciative of that experience because it taught us a lot about how do you take hardware that is not regulated at this moment, and how do you actually look at different markets different segments and try to find product market fit as quickly as possible. So I think after all that, then COVID came, right? And I think you just left this startup. I think there was this question I think we had during our lunch and I'll ask you, what would you have done something differently from this experience going through a pandemic where it actually affected your business pretty badly? 
Yeah. What happened was that COVID came along and we were selling to a lot of the private schools. We were selling to the clinicians. We were selling to different groups of people. And when COVID hit, it hit really hard, right? So all, I would say offline activities literally shut down, right? So the schools, the clinicians all couldn't conduct their activities. And therefore, by virtue of that, our product essentially was not very useful to them because they can't use it. So what we did was we started to, to pivot a little bit. We started to offer online courses. It was challenging because as for children, you just need to have someone looking after them, right? You can't just leave them, especially if they have attention deficit disorder, some issues or challenges. Yes, we, you know, we, we implemented uh, this uh, online training. It helped, but it's not the same experience as having someone being there, caring for the children, making sure that the training is actually properly done. So I would say that, that taught us a lot about how quickly we can pivot a particular product, even though it's not perfect, but I think it, it definitely helped the business. I would say the other thing that I learned very quickly and it reinforced kind of the entrepreneurship 101 that sometimes tend to forget as entrepreneurs and investors is how do you actually find product market fit very quickly? Uh, in this case, because we found product market fit from the school segment, right? The, the education segment, but we never found product market fit at least at that time for the online education segment. We, we cannot assume that the offline product will work exactly as well as the online product. So I think it's almost like a revamp of the current product into something new. And we needed something that could find product market fit as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I think that was a, another lesson that we learned, or at least I learned during that time. Mm. And of course, this is a question that I always ask all my guests. What are the most important lessons you can share with my audience about your career journey? Yeah, it's a, it's been a while, right? I would say something that I never expected because I guess either I'm very dumb or very thick-skinned, maybe just thick-headed because after failing in terms of entrepreneurship three times, I still wanted to do more, right? I still thought that I could make a difference in the world. And I think one of the things that I realized about myself is that it's really the never give up kind of attitude. I see it today as an investor because when I look at some of the um, entrepreneurs that we back, I would love to obviously to see such characteristics in them, right? Yes, you don't want to be like hitting your head against the wall and bleeding it to death, but you want to have someone to, to be smart enough to say, okay, I haven't tried hard enough. I will try all ways to get it done. I'll get it. I'll try all ways to solve the problem. But really, if there's nothing I can do and it's out of my control, then let's pivot to something else and try my best again, right? So you want that kind of spirit in entrepreneurs. And that's what I learned for myself and for the mentors and the people who I'm very grateful to, to show me that. And also to be able to see that in, in the entrepreneurs that we invest into. I think that's a very important lesson that I learned in my career. Mm. I would very much want to talk about your current entrepreneurial venture, but that is a subject for another day, which comes to, of course, the main subject of the day is true global ventures and also thinking about investment in this current climate. So I think maybe to start off, what is the inspiration behind setting up true global ventures? So the founding story of true global ventures, origin story is that a bunch of very talented super angels came together in Europe. They were winning awards, I think, and they were all sitting on a the table. There was a there was a volcano erup eruption and everyone was stuck and on the table. And I think a couple of them, Bushan, a couple of these founding partners, they were all sitting there and they realized that, hey, if we all invested together, maybe we could get better deal flow. Maybe we could get a better way of helping these portfolios. And that was really the birth, right? A volcano eruption, having all the smart minds around a table and deciding that actually... A network is stronger than just an individual running. 
right? That was how True Global Ventures 1 started. And that was before I, I joined them. I actually joined in True Global Ventures Fund 3. This was 2015. So that was how they started as a super angel group and putting just the GP money in. There was no LP money at the time. And then in 2015, when I met Lushan in Singapore, I think at the time he was looking for partners who were serial entrepreneurs who also invested as angels to join this network. And what caught me, or at least got my attention, was that he's a very interesting character. I'm sure if you've met him, you would know. And I think more than that is his views, his strong views on certain things. And of course, the kind of results that he has gotten for himself. So typically in a, in a VC investment, you get like what, 1 out of 10, 2 out of 10 kind of thing. His personal investment at the time, his track record was way above that. All I can say is more than 50%, right? In terms of exits or partial exits. And I was very impressed. I was like, oh, how do you do it, right? I was very in inquisitive. I was always wanting to learn what, how others does it, do it. And I was like, yeah, tell me more, right? How do you achieve such great results? And he shared with me, right? The tenets of how, what we talk about now in True Global Ventures. Number one, we are serial entrepreneurs investing in other serial entrepreneurs. So our mandate is that we only invest in serial entrepreneurs. Secondly, those serial entrepreneurs also invest some amounts, we say usually significant amounts, back into their new startup. Because we want skin in the game, right? We don't want to be just a serial entrepreneur saying, hey, this is other people's money, I can just run with it, no. And third, usually what we ask for is that we look at the company and we say, is this company going global or not, right? And if it is, that's where our network comes in. Because in, in Fund 4, we have about 30 over partners scattered around 20 over cities. So our unfair advantage is that we can help them expand to any part of the world that is a major hub for entrepreneurship. So if these three boxes tick, I would say that these are the companies and founders that we would like to back. So as a founding partner to the fund, how do you bring together the fund and then start investing into companies? I joined through Global Ventures Fund Tree. Uh, that was when, mm. as I mentioned, Dushan came over to Singapore. He actually moved over from, from Europe to Singapore. A special thanks to our, I would say, MES, EDB for doing a great job for attracting such talents in, into Singapore because he was really considering, right, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, where would he move his whole family and start a new fund? And he decided that Singapore was the right mix of safety, regulation, dynamism in terms of the ecosystem and different things, right? When it started, there were about, I think, about 12 to 13 partners coming together. Uh, most, like I said, all serial entrepreneurs. And that was how we really started Fundtree. We focused at the time on fintech only, right? So we were doing fintech, serial entrepreneurs, and we invested around the world. One of the reasons why I also joined True Global Ventures is because it gives me access to the best deals around the world, right? If it's just Kelly, the investor, it will probably be just probably Southeast Asia or Singapore deal flow. But I wanted the best of the best, right? And that's what every investor should and investor should deserve, right? The best of the best deals globally. That was how essentially the True Global Ventures tree started. And how we actually started to invest was we looked at some of the, the entrepreneurs that we've been tracking for the last few years. Some of them came about obviously from True Global Ventures Fund 2. Some of them came about because we were networking with the community in Singapore or in the region. Some of them because some of our partners introduced them to, to some of the deals that they've done or they have their friends have done. And basically, we looked at all of them. Again, we've looked at, I would say, thousands of deals. But the first criteria is if they are not serial entrepreneurs, we can't invest. So maybe that's why a lot of funds love us because we see very good deals and we pass it on to other funds. They are great technologies. They are great teams. But simply because not one of them are serial entrepreneurs. And we just pass it on to our networks to, to invest into. Yeah, so we've been sticking to our mandate for a long time. And that was how we, I would say, accidentally 
kind of invested into this thing called blockchain almost accidentally. But actually, there was a lot of trends that showed us that blockchain was up and coming. We invested in various things like blockchain enterprise, which was at the time, I think 2016, 2017, simply too early, right? I still remember one of the portfolio companies was doing bank KYC. We literally educated, I would say, hundreds of banks around the world. Everyone wanted to find out what it was blockchain and how it helped in the bank, but none of them were ready to pay, right? It ended up, I think, having one POC, but that was it, right? It was simply too early. So that was how we realized that, oh my God, there's something happening here, right? The other factor was that we had a fantasy football company that we eventually sold to Animoca Brands. And that was how we realized, okay, there is an opportunity here, right? Because we spoke to Yasu being the chairman of Animoca, and I think one of your former guests, he's also part of the True Global Ventures Network and investors. And we were chatting about how, what was the future of blockchain gaming entertainment and where we saw it. And when we sold that, that fantasy football company to Animoca, we were looking at how such a gaming, a Web2 gaming company could essentially become a Web3 blockchain powerhouse. So that was how we really got into this whole blockchain. And 2018, we got MES approval in Singapore to start the fund as a focus on an equity blockchain fund. In 2019, that was how we started to do our first investments in the blockchain. That is pretty interesting. But I always have this question for people who are investors. What's a typical day? like for you as an investor of a fund? How I wish it would be wake up, check my phone, see all the equity prices double, see all the crypto prices, token prices double, and then smile, have a coffee and, you know, be on my way. But that does happen. Then I think it's a pipe dream, right? I think a typical day is very interesting because a typical day is not a typical day. And then I think that's what keeps me going, right? Because when we connect to portfolio companies, we always usually don't ask the kind of questions that maybe the other investors might ask, which is like, well, how are you doing in terms of, you know, of sales? How are you doing in, in relation to other key metrics or OKRs or whatever, North Stars? The usual question that we always ask them is, what other relationships would you like to have? So we will ask them specifically, you need more relationships in your next round investors. Like say, for example, if we invest in them in, in Series A, we will ask them whether they need Series B or C contacts. Or we may ask them, like, for example, you told me about this particular kind of partners that you like to have. How are these relationships going? Would you like to have more? Can I tap on my other partners in the network to basically give you more of these relationships? So I would say that every day is very different. And we spend a lot of time, or at least myself, talking to other investors because we know we want to know what's the latest out there. We want to know the trends. We want to know, are there any blind sides or any red flags that are coming up in the industry? so that we can better help our portfolios. It's really meeting a lot of people. It's really talking a lot with the, and caring about on the portfolios and really getting them to the next level. So I think one clear investment thesis that I have heard when you were talking about the origin of the fund, how it was being set up is the selection of zero entrepreneurs. That means they probably have done at least two, three companies. Are there any other investment thesis that you're also adhere to in terms of thinking about investing in people, the way I hear how you structure, even the way you ask the questions to the founders of the companies is why are you helping them to enable maybe there's a certain parts of the skill sets. They need maybe connections, network, they may need strategic partnerships. Yeah. Besides the hard checklists, see being a serial entrepreneur, putting their own money and having skin in the game, having a global product or service that is going global, already global, and we can help them expand. I think those are the kind of like the, the checkboxes that, that every investor would have. I think there's some softer checklist that we usually have. And I guess this comes from different partners and different people's experiences in terms of leading deals. 
because I think our fund is unique in the sense that every investor that brings their own deals essentially is the lead of the deal, right? And those who don't lead deals are basically more in a supportive role in terms of helping those portfolios. So I would say that the conviction must be very strong when we bring a deal to the TGV network because this we are almost like entrepreneurial buddies with them. So one of the things that I would always like to see is chemistry between the founder and myself or between the founder and whatever partner, whoever partner is leading the deal. The chemistry must be there because we, they are, we are literally serial entrepreneurial buddies to them. Literally. One of our portfolio companies, uh, uh, Engine Starter, Prakash, I don't know whether it's a complaint or maybe it's a joke, but he always says that, Kelly, you are the first guy that I message every day and the last guy I message every day. Right. So much so that my wife sometimes complains about it. He <laughs> so yeah. So the chemistry between the founders have to be and the our partners have to be there because it sometimes it's very intense. When things go wrong, can we have a very honest open conversation? When things go right, of course everyone's happy, right? But when mm. things goes wrong, how do we have that honest conversation to be able to help each other? I would say that's the key thing. So from the from a criteria point of view, I would think that's very important. It's very hard to kind of quantify that what chemistry means. But when you've been tracking a founder or you've been a founder for some time, or you understand where the founder is coming from, I think this really helps in terms of choosing a portfolio company. Because there's no mm. point having the best portfolio company, having the best technology, but you can't work with the founders. That's going to be, I think, a nightmare for both sides. So if I reverse the question and say, what would be the red flags you look for then? One of the things I usually always ask the founders is, why are you doing this? What is your motivation? And usually if they tell me that it's plainly just for money, I would say this is a red flag to me because yes, we all need money. Yes, we all would love to build a great company. But I think when the tough gets going, it's very easy to burn out. One of the things is really the motivation. Besides money alone, what else are you driven for? Is this something that you want to make a positive impact in the world? Is this something that you need to prove to yourself or someone that you can do it? Everyone has their own personal kind of conviction. But I will always ask them to think twice if this is something just purely for money. Because I've experienced it myself. If it's just purely for money, it's very easy to give up. It's very easy to burn out. So I think one thing I probably, we haven't really talked about is some of the highlights of your fund. I think your fund has already invested in two unicorns, one of them being Animoca Brands, because I know Yatsu as well. And yeah. the second company is Forge. Can you talk about some of the achievements that you all made as a fund? Sure. We fund for, we call it the base fund. So not to confuse anyone, we, we started that uh, in 2018, December, and then we started investing in 2019. That was essentially where I would say the early movements of, of crypto, right? And then there was also during the time when it was the crypto winter, right? How, you know, how this comes full circle in a way, right? And people were like, oh my God, this, we just, because nobody can tell in hindsight, right? When crypto winter actually ended. And we realized that the best companies were actually the survivors the one that can actually go out there, either acquire others, convince others to do a share swap or being able to be to become dominant, right? Because they are survivors. So that was when we started to invest in things like the Sandbox because Simoka at the time had acquired Sandbox and they, we looked at it. We were like, oh my God, this, my, my, I still remember my first reaction. Are they, are, is this serious? Are they really going to fight against Roblox and Minecraft? Is this really going to be successful? Right. So as I dug in, as the partnership dug in, we realized that it's not the same market that Roblox and Minecraft is going after. This is really about what we call the open metaverse. This is really about digital asset ownership. 
this is really about the fan. We were lucky enough to be, I would say, the to get our way into the cap table. We were the largest early investor at the time, obviously outside of Animoca, which owns the majority. And we invested, we were looking at a long-term horizon and we said, okay, what could make the difference here, right? And I think one of the things that made the difference was, I would say, the Sepp and Arto, who are the, who are the founders of Sandbox, they were very experienced in terms of how to create games, how to create community, because they have done it before. Right. And it showed, right? Because then they went out there, decided to bring in the brands. It was brand by brand, right? So it was like Atari. They brought in you know, at this at this time, I think there's Adidas. And then eventually became Gucci. And then all the different brands were came, were coming in. So I think they were one of the first few Web3 companies out there that convinced mainstream brands, mainstream organizations to join them in their metaverse. And it's not just within Web3 itself. So they became extremely successful. The our fund did extremely well. In fact, we managed to return the whole fund within about two and a half years as a result. And yeah, we were extremely happy. So I think we were one of the first few, as far as I know, deals where we managed to do a deal where we invested in equity because our fund only invests in equity. And we were able to get token warrants right for free, essentially. And that was how we got the SEND token. That was how we got the equity. Because from our point of view, now when we look at hindsight 2020, this gives us a, a great balance in risk, right? Because equity is meant to be long-term, six years, eight years, 10 years, whatever it is that it takes, it's stayed in terms of the equity price. But at the same time, the token, right? Or the token price is more like a roller coaster, right? Of course, there's a big and a spike when you list it in the right exchanges, having the right kind of value that you can bring to the community. And then you get liquidity when there is an IDO or IEO. And that's essentially how you get returns for the fund from a, from a shorter term perspective. So even mm. though we research shorter term, it still takes time, right? It's not like immediate. We don't flip the coin within six months. It still takes two, three years for that to happen. But it balances mm. out the returns for the investors, right? From a long term and long and short term perspective. Mm. So this is something that came up, right? How do you look at Web3 or crypto companies with a very different mechanisms of funding? I think in the sandbox case, you talk about the token warrants as well. I've also mm. done angel investments in Web3, thinking about both equity and tokens as well. How would you try to make a decision? Because if you're only fixed, what if a particular company is only focused on token or is it a mixture of both? Yeah. So we have actually skipped quite a number of interesting companies that were fully token because we just can't do tokens. We are equity investors. And I think we have a lot of happy funds who, who love for us to introduce to them such deals because we just simply cannot do it. But we've seen that the team is good, the technology is good, or the game is good, right? And yeah, so we, we definitely cannot do direct tokens. Uh, but from a perspective of whether it's just equity and or equity plus token warrants, I think it really depends on the, the type of company. Obviously, from an entertainment type of company, company that does more consumer, this kind of companies would have a mixture of both. And of course, that's great, right? Because like I said, it can balance between the short-term returns and the long-term returns. But there's some companies out there that simply you can't force a token on them. They just do well as a SaaS or they just do well as an enterprise solution. And no matter how you try to fit a square into a circle or a triangle or whatever, it just doesn't make sense. So it's just a matter of, whether how do we balance the portfolio to have some companies that are more focused on having tokens, equity, and then versus some others that only do, we can only do equity itself. So there are a couple of strands of conversation that I think we can take it. We talk about Animoca brands, we talk about Sandbox. They are really focusing a lot on the metaverse, real digital. 
asset ownership, what I call the open metaverse as well. So when you think about that, then NFTs definitely come into play, right? Non-fungible tokens. Yes. I profess I have done deals on that, but also an equity play. But what I do not do yeah. is I don't know how to buy apes and penguins. So I decided that I'm just going to buy things that make apes and penguins. So very curious, what are your thoughts on NFTs? I think in this period, it's pretty interesting. Are there some use cases which you think people have not deeply explored into? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, NFTs, some people joke, is like not for trading, right? NFT, not for trading. But uh, yeah, I think the whole craziness that happened in the last couple of years, pre this winter was really about speculation, really about looking at interesting NFTs to trade, right? I mean, essentially the utility was how much money can you make from flipping it, right? Being a part of a community that makes sense, right? Like Bot Apes and all these that actually created real communities and then games on top of it. So you notice that a lot of these mm, top PFPs, right? Profile picks and, and NFTs out there, the ones that survive or at least are still doing well, relatively well, are the ones that create this community, create these games, create other utilities rather than just having it be speculated, which is not great. So like, for example, the Bodit Yacht Club collaborated with Animoca, right? And, and the Mythical Games to create this other universe because they know that they have a good following. They know that people understand the brand, at least the Web3 guys, right? <laughs> and the celebrities who buy, who hold some of these apes. And they said, okay, let's extend the brand to, to all these other utilities. I think those will do well. Of course, they have to prove themselves in terms of whether the game is fun, whether the metaverse is actually useful. All these things still need to be played out. But I think one of the interesting things that, that we've seen is that NFTs are not just about collectibles, not just about speculation. And one example I would like to give is this uh, subsidiary of Animoca called TinyTap. They are one of the top, if not the top education, I would say company on, on you will see them on, on, play, on this Play Store and Apple Store, basically allowing K-12 content to be created and consumed on mobile, right? So they, they have millions of downloads. They have all the traditional metrics that make them a great company. So what happened was that Animoca acquired them and then now they are a subsidiary. But I think the most interesting part of this whole thing is that they managed to find a new uh, or relatively new concept called publisher NFTs. So essentially what happens is that they are trying to reward the teachers or the content creators who create this content. So it could be learn English as a Chinese native speaker, right? Or it could be learn mathematics with a fun animal zoo team. So anything out there, right? It's like a super flexible PowerPoint plus animation creator a platform. So essentially what this publisher NFTs are is that it creates a contract, a smart contract between the publisher, right? Which in this case is anyone who buys the rights, like your licensee, right? Between them, the teacher or the content creator and the distributors, whoever is out there who's distributing this. So like say, for example, right? In this case, the teachers receive 50% of all the proceeds when they did the auction, right? For these causes. So like I said, the course could be a language course, could be a math course, could be a science course, could be anything, right? And this allows the, te the teacher or the content creator to be awarded or rewarded with something upfront, right? And then what happens because it's on a smart contract, everything on that is, that is traded onwards, the content creator still gets 10%, right? This uh, course itself. And the person who is or entity that is doing the hard work of marketing, going out there into schools, they can get a cut of the whole thing, right? So they, they may get 80% of the shares because they are the NFT owner, right? So it creates an equitable chain, 
right? Between the content creator, which in this case was the teachers, the people who are selling, right? This to the schools and potentially the school themselves who are selling it to the parents. So there's a mm. chain of everyone who gets something out of it. And I would say this is a very interesting use case because if you've seen some of the lives of the teachers change forever, they were giving testimonials that they managed to get like one year of salary. Can you imagine one year of salary from this NFTs in themselves? And it really shows that they always say about teachers being unappreciated, not having, having the kind of like remuneration based on the value that they create for society. And this kind of publisher NFTs could change that, right? Essentially, they could get be, be remunerated with the kind of hard work, sweat, blood and tears in the content that they create. So I think education is probably one interesting space. Are there any like other interesting companies on the True Global Ventures portfolio that we have not spoken about? Maybe somewhere in a different Web3 segment? Absolutely. So, so a lot of people thought True Global Ventures only invest in entertainment, but we don't. Yeah, just because we were known for Animoca and for Sandbox and various other. We do have a good mix of these portfolios and I would love to share a bit more about some of them. So I think area that I think is up and coming or starting to see a lot of, of growth is the whole blockchain enterprise, right? And the thing I shared about this in the earlier part of our, our sharing in like in 2016, 2017, we invest, invested in a bank KYC, right? A financial institution, but KYC solution. And the time was simply too early, right? And we were just literally educating the whole market. But I think we're, we are glad to let you, to let everyone know that I think this has changed. I think the, the 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 enterprises all kind of know what blockchain is about. And now it's really about deployment of this. So one example I'd like to give is a company called Chronicle. It's a US company, HQ company. Essentially what they do is that they connect different pharmaceutical companies together using their blockchain, which is in this case, the Medi Ledger, right? So in a traditional setting, what you need to do is you need to use something like EDI, electronic data interchange, right? Format to basically connect to each other. Like say, for example, you are J&J, Johnson & Johnson, you are another pharmacy and a pharmaceutical company and another the only way to kind of talk to each other usually is either through email, which most of them do, or EDI, which, which is a more kind of automated format. But that has been around for, I would say, decades. So what the Medi Ledger does is that it allows all these different co-opetition, right, to talk to each other, right, to kind of share information, like, like for example, very sensitive information, like stock flow, right, and all these different things. And to be able to solve one particular problem, in this case for Chronicle, which is in the US called chargebacks. So essentially when a, when a pharmaceutical gets a certain stock pushed to, let's say for example, a pharmacy like CVS or whatever, sometimes there's this thing called chargebacks where they say, okay, I, I don't want this batch of whatever drugs that you, you send to me, right? So there's always at any one time, hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars stuck in the system right, of all these kind of chargebacks and contention. So to the, pharma to the pharmaceutical company, that is cost, right? To the distributors, this is cost. To the group purchasing organization, what we call the GPOs, this is cost. So instead of kind of debating, trying to send each other Excel files, spreadsheets, and using EDI and whatever, they found a solution that essentially uses blockchain to, to solve this problem. And it, it's, I would say it's, it's a very interesting way of using blockchain to, to solve a real world enterprise problem. So that's one. Another company that I would like to share about is a company called Iomob. They essentially a, a transport optimization platform in the sense that they can connect your different, like for example, Uber, Grab, train, flights, uh, even things like, for example, you being on a, on a scooter, even walking, right? They can optimize 
from point A to point B, right, using their technologies. And what they found was that they were kind of like dominating the traditional system integrator space, right? So they work with big transport companies and organizations. But what they found was that the sales cycle was long, right? Because this is enterprise. It changes the way a country or a city works. And they found that could they use tokenomics, in this case, what they call wheel coins, to actually incentivize users to actually pick greener traffic, greener options to travel. So instead of like a car, maybe you can take a, you can cycle, or maybe you can kind of take a greener option like a train, right? They wanted a way to use tokenomics to essentially incentivize users to, to take the greener option. But what was interesting is that they found that corporates were trying to track such behavior from their employees, right? So they, what they did was they typically asked them to fill up how they came to work. And then they, like, they may incentivize them by having like a lucky draw at the end of the month and because they needed to do reporting. And this reporting was not perfect because they're trying to extrapolate from the data, right? Because they can never capture everyone's movement, right? And there's some privacy issues or privacy concerns there. So they were never able to get very good data. So what they found is that if they can use this tokenomics in an app, right, a platform where you can track essentially how you travel, right, in, in choosing the greener options and be able to give anonymous kind of data to the corporates, then this is a win-win, right? Because then you incentivize the employee to travel using green options and you incentivize in a way the, the corporates to use such a solution because they can do great reporting now, right, to stay ESG compliant and to be able to make a positive impact in the world. So that's another, I would say, interesting enterprise blockchain use case. In this case, using tokenomics. And I would say the last, last but definitely not least, enterprise use case is this company called Didoko, headquartered here in, in Singapore. Essentially, they found that e-signature is obviously prevalent in a lot of organizations, but essentially they found a way to put this on the blockchain, right? and be able to let organizations who are highly regulated, so like, for example, governments, healthcare, uh, banks, FIs, to stay compliant. One of the biggest problems is that today of e-signature is that you have to send out your documents, right, into a cloud. You don't know where this cloud is. It could be in the US, it could be somewhere else in a jurisdiction that you're really not supposed to send the data out to. So what is the solution? The solution is essentially for the banks to ask the customer to come to the bank and sign right? Which is not what users want, right? Why would you want to come all the way to the bank just to do an e-signature to stay compliant yep. for the bank? That's right. So essentially what they did was they said, okay, put all this into our, into our platform, get documents, stay, make the documents stay within the firewalls of this organization, and then only use, after you've signed it, only use the blockchain to verify if someone has signed it and the versions are correct, the workflow is correct. So nothing leaves the firewall of the of the organization. They stay fully compliant. It's secure. But at the same time, they have the convenience of for letting anyone sign the document anywhere in the world using mm. the blockchain to verify that someone has really signed it and the versions and the workflows are all correct. So yeah, mm. I would say these are just some of the exciting portfolios that we have from a blockchain enterprise perspective. Mm. How do you manage and work with your portfolio companies? I think... You have a pretty unique background. You come from an entrepreneur and also operator background. How do you help your companies as a board member in a variety of helping them to build up these companies to the next stage of funding for them? 
Yeah. I would say that one of the things I mentioned briefly just now was we see ourselves as entrepreneurial buddies to to the other, I mean, to the zero entrepreneurs. Of course, the C-level may not have all zero entrepreneurs. Some of them are first-time entrepreneurs or some of them come from corporates. I think one of the important things is really to have that kind of relationship to be open with the founders. Because as I mentioned, when things are good, everyone is happy. But when things are bad, all right, when the macroeconomic situation looks bleak, when the, where when we are in part or at least during crypto, I think that the relationship between the myself and the founders are very important. And that goes for all partners who are leading deals because you must have that kind of open relationship to, to kind of say, hey, buddy, right? Or bro, right? This is not working, right? Something is not right here. You never want to tell the entrepreneur what you how to do and you know, how to run a company because they are the ones that know the company inside out. But you but you might want to, at least I try to share some of the of my learnings as an entrepreneur before. I will just say, okay, this is what I learned. This is what I experienced. I hope this will inspire you or help you think about certain ways. So it's almost like a coach, right? It's not a mentor. It's not a, I tell you or consultant, right? It's not a, I tell you what to do, go and do it. It's more like, hey, have you considered this? This is my experience before. Would you like to think about this in this way, right? I think it's really a coaching kind of thing. Sometimes it comes down to even things like talking about juggling time with the family, emotional kind of support. It's not just the fact, the numbers that we are that we are concerned about. It's really the entrepreneurs that we're concerned about. So I think now we are in 2023. We went through a pretty tumultuous 2022 for crypto and Web3. And we went from the era of cheap money now, I think, to what I call the era of quotation, expensive money. What's your outlook like for 2023? Yeah, it's a very good question. We did the most sensible thing. We went to our global partners in over 20 cities and we started to ask them questions like, what do you think, what would you stand for? What would you really think that 2023 would be? And it's not just because you read it somewhere or you heard it from some kind of seminar about this. Are you really, really being able to stand behind? And what would you really think 2023 would be? Nobody can predict the future. In 2022, we predicted some of the stuff, some of it we got right, some of it we got wrong. I think it's perfectly normal. So these are just some of the things that we think 2023 would be. There were five trends we saw, right? We think that the winners will become more attractive in 2023. Why do we say that? Because just as when we saw it in the dot-com, because a lot of us come from the Web2 world when we invested as either VCs or angels. And we saw like, for example, Amazon, it came out of the dot-com bubble and became dominant. And we saw in the last crypto winter, when, for example, Animoca came out and became dominant, we see the same thing again that will happen. We know that because some of these companies have really good technologies, but they just didn't raise enough, just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And this is when these winners will do mergers and acquisitions of them and become much stronger. So we think that the winners of 2022 will become even more attractive in 2023. So that's trend number one. Trend number two, we think that centralization is dead. We think that decentralization is coming back with a vengeance for sure. It's not just a little bit or small kind of improvement because I think a lot of uncertainty from the Luna crash, the FTX diebacker that happened, a lot of things, people are demanding transparency. They want to be able to run to safety. So we think things like, for example, self-custody happened. You know, the winners could be things like companies like Ledger, Trezor, where you know everyone just pulling out their funds from centralized exchanges keeping it almost like under your pillow, right? In this case, in your hardware device. And the HO saying in, in crypto is not your keys, not your coins. So we think this is a really a mega trend in the next few years 
that's going to happen. And we think that, yes, there will be a lot of flight outs, but we think that centralized custody will st still survive because there's always a balance between, in a sense, two different school of thoughts, the yin and yang. And we think that some of the winners will be those who are able to connect the self-custody solutions to a lot of services that are out there. So it's really the convenience for them to do, like for example, DeFi trades, buying NFTs, but having that kind of safety that is now within the hardware wallets or the wallets itself. So we think that is definitely one of the areas that will happen in terms of decentralization. We think definitely from a decentralized point of view, the first use case or what we call it, the first use case of blockchain, which is Bitcoin, will continue to become winners in 2023 and beyond because there's nothing that essentially can screw around with it unless factoring things like, for example, human intervention or human greed or having scams and things like that, right? That happened recently. So we think Bitcoin will definitely do well. I think the third trend that we see is that consumers will demand more security and privacy. Right? Because this is something where having all the horror stories of people losing their life savings on FTX, losing a big part of their savings on Luna, I think a lot of people will then demand security and privacy. They will look at things like, for example, audit trails. They will look at things like, for example, having better smart contracts and things that are more secure. So this demand will definitely be there. But I think the fourth thing that we see is the open metaverse that will become mainstream. This is a very hard one in the sense that you never know, right? Because when Facebook became Meta, Mark Zuckerberg was talking about how do we access the metaverse using this Oculus VR goggles or maybe in this AR and mixed reality. There's a lot of chatter about open metaverses. So we think that open metaverses will become mainstream because we've seen a gap that happened in the past, which is the brands, the luxury brands, the consumer brands were not there at all. But now we see a lot of these consumer brands coming in. We see a lot of this adoption of events coming in, right? So like, for example, New Year parties. In this case, we have things like a Lunar New Year party in Hong Kong, in the mega city of Hong Kong in the sandbox. So a lot of these cultural entertainment events are being picked up now within this metaverses. So this will attract more mainstream users and not just the Web3 users itself. And we see, for example, event-driven experiences like FIFA collaborating with Upland for the World Cup Qatar 2022, having soccer fans come and adopt the platform. We see things like, for example, digital twinning happening, right? Metaverse Soul was created to launch a virtual replica of the capital city. We see Japan talking about policy speeches, talking about how to invest into NFTs and metaverses. We see a lot of these happening in 2022. And we see that going forward, we probably reach a turning point, maybe a, a, the a point where this will continue to accelerate in 2023. So we think this is very mega trend in having this mainstream adoption in open metaverses as trend four. And definitely last but not least, we think that decentralized AI, which affects Web3, will become a major part of our lives. So I think everyone has been talking about chat GPT, how we can outsource writing, maybe even, I don't know, podcast choice. But we think that a lot of this has raised the awareness for AI. And we think this will have a spillover effect into Web3. So we see a lot of projects that do things like, for example, decentralized data exchanges protocols, which enable things like secure and transparent data sharing. And we see things like projects that do decentralized platforms for AI services. We see all these coming into full in 2023 because of mixture of more mass adoption of awareness in AI. So one mm. example I would like to give is also in terms of data analytics in this space of AI and data analytics 
is, for example, this company called Fever. They basically use a way to create experiences that you can have in metaverses. And this is based on your preferences, you know, in certain kind of behavior that can reinforce better experiences for the user itself. So these are the five kind of trends that we are very convicted and then we know that more or less will happen. We'll see in one year time if, you know, how many of the five we get correct. But yeah, we are extremely excited with these five trends. I still haven't seen the startup that is doing using DALI to generate NFTs and then turn it into a crypto right. collection. I know that startup is going to show up at any time now. There's probably good. Right. at least five yeah. or 10 of those guys are doing that. Okay, so yes. the final question I have is, what does great look like for true global ventures? I think great looks like a combination of a few things. We always talk about how a startup hits product market fit and then essentially get a flywheel going, right? In terms of value and everything. So I think great at True Global Ventures, from my point of view, is us finding that company, the team of zero entrepreneurs and an idea that can essentially change the industry, convincing them that we as a fund can help them to grow exponentially globally and us actually helping them to not only close around with us, but also to grow, number one, like I said, and also to, to close the next round of funding and all subsequent rounds of funding till the ultimate exit. And having that kind of chemistry that maybe after many years later, when they come back and look at us, they say, hey, thanks for the ride. Uh, we really treasure what you do. And in my new startup, say for example, because these are serial entrepreneurs that cannot usually sit still, right? I would love for you, True Global Ventures, to be our investor again. Right. And I think that will really mean that we've done something great and we have added value for this person or this group of people, these entrepreneurs, and they're willing to come and work with us again because they had a great experience with us. Kelly May, thanks for coming on the show. In closing, I have two very quick questions. Question number one, any recommendations which have inspired you recently? You're talking about books, movies, TV series, those kind of things, right? Uh, yeah, you can pay um, any one of them. How about conversations? Can I pick a conversation or mm, a few conversations? Sure. sure, sure. Yeah. So I think having good conversations with people, uh, like like what we had during lunch, talking about life, talking about how technology affects our lives. I think those are the conversations that actually affect truly myself. People talking about not just about making money, not just about, about having the returns a fund should have. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, what are we doing, right? Essentially, we're trying as a fund to accelerate companies, groups of people who come together to basically make a difference to the world, right? Whether that difference is financial, whether that difference is impact, right? In terms of green and ESG, whether that impact is to change the lives of people, like in this case, the example I gave, Anytap and the lives that it has changed for teachers. I think finding that, that inspiration, having conversations with these people, asking them why they're doing thing, the things they're doing, I think this is the one that, that gives a lot of inspiration to myself. Mm. So how can my audience find you? You can go on LinkedIn, search for Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y space C-H-O-O. I should be the first guy that is there. If you see a lady profile pics, that's not me. But usually I'm the first guy that, that you, if you search Kelly space Chu, or if you can go to linkedin.com slash I-N, right? Which in slash Kelly Chu or one word, you will find me on LinkedIn. Connect to me. Say that you love our you you heard our conversation on Analyze Asia and we'll let's connect from there. Mm, you can definitely find us on any podcast platform, but I'm going to be very specific now. I would like all of you to help me to subscribe to the YouTube channel or go to our main site, analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E dot Asia, and subscribe to our newsletter. 
So, Kelly, man, thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Bernard. And really appreciate your time and this interview. Thank you so much. 